from Advisory Board, we are bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. Over the last year, there has been a real reckoning with the inequities that exist here in the United States. Inequities that result in dramatic differences in health outcomes for people of color. And as white people continue to receive the majority of life-saving coronavirus vaccines, there is real potential for the health equity divide to get a heck of a lot worse. So I wanted to bring an organization to this podcast to talk about their proactive efforts and share what they're doing to reduce inequities, to combat legitimate hesitancy, and to build trust with communities of color. To do that, I've brought two leaders from Parkland Health and Hospital System. We've got the CEO, Fred Cerise, and the president and CEO of Parkland's Center for Clinical Innovation, Steve Miff. Hey, Fred. Hey, Steve. Good morning. Hello. Have either of you been on a podcast before? I have not. I don't think I have. Steve? I've done a couple, uh, and they're always, uh, I think, I find them very fun, and I find them uh, very interesting to see what comes on the other end, because it's usually better than uh, the input. No pressure. (laughs) No pressure. Well, thank you both so much for joining Radio Advisory to talk about this incredibly important topic. I kind of want to start at the high level because there is so much that organizations can do to focus on reducing inequities. What led you and ultimately Parkland to focus on inequities in COVID-19 vaccinations specifically? Inequities is a big part of the work that we do with a public hospital, with a public health system in Dallas County. So, you know, looking at access to care and outcomes and those types of things. It's part of what we do. And we know that at times of crisis, those disparities become exacerbated. I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. we've seen that happen, you know, over and over again. So we knew that that was coming. And so with the onset of COVID-19, whether it was testing or treatment or now vaccinations, we we knew it was something we're going to have to be intentional about focusing on. Hmm. Steve, why vaccines? Even from a data perspective, it's part of everything that we do. So leveraging social determinants of health and leveraging data science to understand somebody's life challenges is basically embedded into uh, how we analyze and look at everything. So with vaccines, it's been equally important to really understand those factors, understand the vulnerability, understand who's at highest Mm -hmm. risk, and be able to use that to uh, prioritize or target things in a very equitable way. And we are going to go headfirst into all of that data since we have an expert like you, Steve, on the line. But but Fred, I kind of want to come back to something that you just said. Parkland takes on a public health role in the community. But I don't know that every other health system or hospital leader actually thinks that way. In fact, I've had folks specifically say to me, that is not our job. Our job is not to do what the public health agencies do. What do you say to that pushback? First off, Parkland's a little different because we are the county hospital and about a third of our budget comes from the county. And so we do have more of a role there than others. But I would push back to the other hospitals in general and, and say, you know, healthcare consumes almost a fifth of the economy mm-hmm. in the country. And hospitals are about 30% of that. And so there is a lot of investment in our systems and there's a lot of resources that we have 
if you look at the public health system, those things are generally narrowly, fun, they're pretty lean. They don't have the capacity to surge the way hospitals, you know, with the scale that we have can turn things on at times of a crisis. And so I would push back and say it is the hospital. We, we can't ignore the fact that we exist in a, in a bigger ecosystem and the communities have invested quite a bit of, of money, trust in our systems. And so I, I do think we have a responsibility to reach beyond our, our traditional roles, particularly in a time of crisis. So when it comes to inequities in vaccination, there's a ton that leaders can do. But my understanding is that Parkland decided to start first on building community trust. Why was that so important? We know we're going to have enough vaccine at some point to vaccinate everybody that wants to be vaccinated. The limiting factor is going to be acceptance of Mm -hmm. of, of vaccine. If we're going to reach herd immunity, we need 70, 80 percent of the people to accept uh, vaccination. And we also know that there's a history of mistrust, yep. particularly among minority communities, some of that very well-founded, uh, understandable. And so the limiting factor is not going to be the availability of vaccine, but it's going to be acceptance of the population. And so we can't ignore that fact. On the one hand, if you didn't care about community mistrust in that in, in, in that piece, you still need to do that from a public health perspective to reach herd immunity. We do care about that other piece. And we think, think it's important that we address the historic mistrust that's well-founded. And I appreciate the fact that you said that this mistrust is legitimate, right? There are well-documented reasons throughout history up until till right now for why Black, Hispanic, Latino populations would be hesitant to use the health system, period, let alone receive a vaccine that's only gotten emergency use authorization. Let's talk about what Parkland did. You have described this as a little bit of a push and a little bit of a pull. What do you mean by that? The push piece will come a bit later, actually. And that is where, you know, people that are already coming to our system and are accessing services, when they come, we'll be able to push the vaccine out as they come and access clinical services. Right now, the effort is the pull, and that is doing outreach to people who are not like showing up at clinic for an appointment, but we're reaching out to them to say, you're at risk. We know you're at risk for these reasons. And so trying to pull them in to our vaccination sites right now. And the pull is, I'm guessing, where it matters a ton to look at data, which, Steve, is, I think, where you come in. No, that's exactly right. And what we've tried to do is really understand the individuals, the neighborhoods, the communities that are most vulnerable for covid by combining a number of different data sets, not only the, the, the key elements from CDC, such as age comorbidities, but also incorporate into that factors such as mobility, factors such as social determinants of health. And by doing that, understand who's most vulnerable. So then we can target more specifically those neighborhoods. And also by doing that, understand the ethnic racial makeup of those communities. So any outreach can be done in a very cultural sensitive way, in a very targeted way. Yeah. And Steve, your team put this together as a, I think it's called a vulnerability index. Is that right? That's correct. And it gets down to, I want to say it's block by block level data that you can use then for targeted outreach. That's exactly right. We've been doing it at the block level to get really hyper localized and very specific. And then for some of the vaccination prioritization work, we've actually taken that even to an individual level. An individual patient or or person's level. 
Correct. Because, you know, if the data is available, we know the age, we know the comorbidities based on their medical history, and then we can apply some of the other factors relative to the socioeconomic status and the level of mobility that occurs in their neighborhood and combine those to be able to get a much more granular understanding of their environment and also understand if they live in an area that is a hotspot at a particular moment in time for COVID. Hmm. I'm curious, as you've built this vulnerability index, you've mentioned a ton of different inputs. Are there any that stick out as ones that maybe other organizations aren't prioritizing right now? The most obvious inputs are things like age, demographic, uh, health status, right? Do you have comorbidities? But because this is so robust, are there any inputs that you want to put on the radar for other clinical leaders to make sure they're incorporating? The key learning for us was that incorporating the social determinants of health data made a significant difference in... Like what? Like education, things like that? Yeah, it's the combination of income level, it's the education, is the housing situation, is the mm. transportation needs, the, the, the food needs. It's really looking comprehensively at all those factors in aggregate and using that in a way to understand also vulnerability. And what we've noticed by doing the retrospective analysis is that when you combine all these different factors together, there is an 87% correlation to both infections and COVID-like illness presentation. So they're very highly correlated when you combine them. High vulnerability index, high risk of disease and ultimately death from COVID-19. So let's prioritize getting those people the vaccines first. That's exactly right. And then one of the other things that we've learned is because, as you mentioned earlier, COVID has impacted different racial ethnic groups, some a lot more than others. One of the other things that we wanted to make sure that we do is understand uh, what's driving some of that. And a key learning for us has been that by incorporating the social determinants of health, that has been, to some extent, the uh, equalizer across different racial and ethnic groups. And mm. uh, further point to the need to take that into account, not only the, particularly now for COVID, but a lot of the other clinically related things that we've done in the past and will continue to do in the future. You used the word equalizer just now, which is, I think, incredibly important in this moment where a lot of people are anxious and eager to get this vaccine, particularly white people. White people who can, you know, take time off work, who can sit on their computer ready to refresh the page. And I think there is a lot of concern and question about how do you balance appropriate prioritization with playing favorites or maybe creating, you know, downstream effects that you didn't predict. Is that something that Parkland has had to deal with? I would say almost daily because uh, you want to make sure that as, as you put this information out there, it's first of all, it's very data driven. It's guided and driven by, by science. And also that's very transparent. This cannot be a black box. So you have to be very transparent of how and what inputs are, what outputs are. So folks at all different levels can, can understand how it's being done. Fred, I wonder if you can give an example of how this kind of daily challenge of balancing appropriate prioritization and, and playing favorites has actually played out at Parkland. Probably about a month and a half or so ago, uh, we knew that there would be a, a weekend where we did not have people scheduled to a large extent for infections. We were sort of still in our ramp-up phase, and we knew the county sites 
we're seeing what you described earlier, and that is a disproportionate number of white individuals that had gotten onto the registration sites early and quick and uh, and were getting vaccinated at the county site. And so we did some outreach to some of the communities that uh, we know are heavily represented by minorities that we know were not getting vaccinated at the county sites. And so did some outreach to churches and did some outreach to community centers and whatnot and said, listen, we're going to have some walk-up availability on Saturday and Sunday from these hours. Well, I got blowback from people almost immediately about having a secret vaccination uh, oh, event no. at Parkland. Yeah, no, no. There was nothing secret about it. It was all over social media. Uh, we had, you know, a line of people probably four blocks long before five o'clock in the morning. So it was definitely not a secret. But just by trying to do some targeted outreach to some areas that we knew were not getting in generated that sort of backlash. And so the process Steve described of trying to, you know, we, we now we're trying to get people registered at a site. And then with that registration, apply the criteria that Steve's group has been able to develop to prioritize once people get on a site. So, you know, I may be the, the, the 100,000th person to register on a site, but based on my risk, I'm going to get an invitation to, to get a vaccine, you know, in the next week because I'm a high, by objective criteria, I'm a higher risk person. And and this is really important. Everyone that I know personally and sort of professionally has this, has an online registration system for vaccines. And that's where you hear the stories of more affluent people with more control over their schedule, you know, blocking their calendar so they can just refresh the page over and over again. That doesn't even account for access to broadband issues and do you have a computer and things like that. Have you stuck with this online registration system or have you pivoted to other ways of registering more vulnerable populations for the vaccine? It's both. We have stuck with the online, but recognizing what you just said, we've had to do more outreach so that people we, we can help people sign up. We can help people that don't have access to computers, partnering with community organizations that then can get people in and, and enroll people. And so once they get on the registration list, then you can apply a prioritization, uh, you know, based on objective criteria. But it is a challenge to get on that list. And so we've had to do a lot of individual outreach that doesn't involve being able to refresh, refresh to get to the mm-hmm. top of the list. There's, of course, the challenge of prioritizing the people that you want to engage. But now there are a heck of a lot more vaccines on the market. We've got J&J's one-dose vaccine. We've got Pfizer. We've got Moderna. Have you made a decision as an organization about how you will prioritize specific vaccines for specific communities? We're in the midst of that right now, as you know, because the the J&J vaccine just got released. And so we expect to get some of that this week. We're doing like a lot of organizations. You're looking at your populations that may be tougher to track to get back for a second dose. And that's who we're going to target with our J&J vaccines initially. And so we have a homeless uh, healthcare program. Mm. That, that program will take the uh, vaccines to homeless shelters and to the sites that they visit around town. We have a jail health program. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll take that vaccine to the jails to administer that way. You know, one of the things that I think everybody's looking at there and you hear the conversation now is, okay, what if, you know, are you going to give a better vaccine to this group or that group? Exactly. And, you know, we just don't have the data to say we have a better vaccine. And and that's the honest truth. Is that truth. something people understand, right? Because there's a difference between 
sort of reality and perception. And right, we started off this conversation by talking about inequities more broadly. We haven't even talked about things like access and how difficult it can be to get somebody into healthcare, period, if they're working two jobs or don't have transportation, et cetera, which is a huge benefit of the J&J vaccine. Yeah. The thing that get, keeps me up at night is would those same vulnerable populations, those largely minority populations think, I'm getting, I'm getting the short end of the stick here. How do you combat that? It's a real issue. I mean, we, we struggle with that too as we're developing our strategy. But the truth of the matter is we don't know that one is better than the other. They have not been tested head to head at the same time. You know, you've got the J&J with, that's been tested later where you've got variant strains. You're not taking into account how many people will show up for the second dose or miss the second that's dose right. and what the impact of that's going to be. And so with the best data we have and listening to the experts that, you know, dedicate their lives to this, you, you, you've got people like Dr. Fauci who are saying, take the, va- the vaccine that's in front of you. And that's there's right. really not the science to say one is better than the other right now. I couldn't agree more. I'm thinking if I'm spending my time, you know, arguing with my friends over Zoom happy hours and telling them, no, you've got to get any vaccine you can. I can only imagine how difficult it is when you, when you, you know, extrapolate that out to the rest of the population. Steve, you spend a ton of time on building out this this robust data set, this process, this ultra specialized way of prioritizing folks for the vaccine. I have to imagine that it hasn't always been a perfect process. What are some of the big kind of hiccups or barriers that you've hit? And what did you learn from that that you want to make sure our listeners know about? You're absolutely right. It's a learning process. And uh, the best we can do is adapt. I think there are two key things that come to mind. One is the amount of time and energy that we spend every day cleaning the data and making that actionable. And what I mean mean by that is something that you actually alluded to earlier on folks registering again and again and again, because if I do it 50 times, chances are maybe better that I'm going to get higher on the list. So you have a lot of duplications of registrations. And then the second one is to be able to actually practically know if somebody on the list has already received the vaccine, because it's not always easy or convenient for somebody who is on the list to call back and say, by the way, take me off the list because I received the vaccine. Steve, I got to tell you, my parents literally went through that themselves, where my mom was able to get a a vaccine appointment. My dad wasn't. They ended up going to the same appointment anyway, saying, please, please, can can he get a dose? He was able to get a dose. And then my mom spent two hours on the phone trying to cancel his appointment for the following week. No, that's that's exactly right. And it's it's a very dynamic process. So you have to do this daily. And because then once you provide the outreach teams with that list, their success rate for contacting somebody in register, you want it to be as high as possible. And if too many folks have even multiple times on the list and they're calling the same people or they're ready to receive it somewhere else, it's a little bit of a waste of their time. So, so one of them is, is really just that blocking and tackling to make sure that you use the information that's most curated mm-hmm. and accurate. But the second one you also alluded to, and there was a, you know, a, a, a miss. And, you know, when I think back, it's like, boy, it makes so much sense. Why do we miss this? But we've described, we use this very data-driven scientific way to, to rank folks that's, you know, based on their risk. Well, by doing that, what we've noticed is that you end up having families 
that you have a spouse who might be, you know, 65 with no comorbidity and somebody else who's 74 with a comorbidity, and they might end up several hundred spots away from each other on the list. And hence, they're being Mm. scheduled at different times at different locations, which is not that convenient for them by any stretch. So key lessons was, let's as we create these lists, let's make sure that we identify if you have folks that are together within the same criteria and categories, but bring them in a way that they can be scheduled at the same time. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. COVID-19 vaccine updates are coming at us fast and furious. Let us help you focus on the most important headlines, make sense of them for your organization and patients, and maximize the success of your vaccine initiatives. Visit advisory.com slash COVID-19 for resources focused on your vaccine acceptance and administration and for other tools designed to support you in the ongoing battle against COVID-19. So far, we've been talking about the pull part of your strategy, right? The proactive kind of data-driven outreach that health systems can do to engage the communities who are in the most need of protection. Not even the communities, the people, right? Down to that very, very specific level. But the other side of the initiative that you described is more of a push. What does that entail? So the push is more for the people that are coming to the doctor for other things, but you're taking advantage of that opportunity to get the vaccine to them. And so as we think about the mistrust that we talked about earlier, the one place that is consistently ranked highest among people and for their source of medical information is their physician's office. They still, that's still, you know, uh, they trust their doctor to give them a message. And so we want to take advantage of, of that. And also from a convenience standpoint, you know, a lot of the patients that we see a day off, a day to the doctor is a day off of work. It may involve childcare and transportation challenges. So to the extent that we can push that vaccine at the time that we have people in the office, it's going to be a big advantage to us and to the people that we, we take care of. And so right now what we're doing is we are, we're routing them from the office because we don't, it's not a, it, it's, it's not a, a disseminated vaccination site strategy at this point, right? You're still in hubs. And so we're capturing in the office and then directing them to the vaccination site. But what we hope at some point when we have a more disseminated strategy is to catch everybody when they're coming through the office and do their education there. And while Mm. they're at, you know, their visit for whatever, they're going to get their vaccine at the same time. I love this comment because it's such an easy thing to do, right? Even if you don't have the data and analytics to build this robust kind of index, what you can easily do is make sure every time patients are showing up for their doctor's appointment anyways, that you're assessing their risk, addressing their concerns, and pushing them to an an immunization. Ideally, that moment that they've already taken off work and, and et cetera, et cetera, if you can. I love that approach. So much of what we do is, is structured around that, the health system and the convenience of the health system. And so, you know, as we look for more opportunities to be more patient centric, you know, how can we make things easier for the patients? And that's just one small example of that, right? We were just talking about kind of using 
existing appointments as an opportunity to address concerns about the vaccine. This is another area where I will admit I start to feel icky very quickly because I hear a lot of folks, a lot of well-intentioned folks, focusing on education. And I'm afraid they might be missing the point, right? They're talking about we need to educate people of color. We need to educate Black communities about the benefits of the vaccine, et cetera. But that sort of assumes that these groups are uninformed and uneducated when, in my experience, they're actually ultra-informed about the history of medical abuse and experimentation on their people, right? Again, gets back to legitimate mistrust. So when it comes to community outreach, when it comes to this kind of push, how do you see the difference between education and a campaign aimed at building trust? I think it's a great distinction because, like you you said, a lot of times the problem is not education, but sometimes it is. And so I think the approach has to be both. I'll give you an example. I talked to one of our housekeepers at the hospital a few months ago. And asked her if she had gotten vaccinated and she had not and asked her what her concern was. And she said she was afraid she would get COVID from the, the uh, vaccine. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you look at the data, about half of, of blacks who are vaccine hesitant list that as one of their concerns that you actually get COVID. So there's a pretty straightforward educational opportunity there around how the vaccine works. And I was able to have that conversation because I know the person and we already mm-hmm. have a rapport and, and she ultimately got vaccinated. But at a community level, that's probably a message that may be difficult for me to deliver. And it's going to be better received from somebody that has established trust in the community. And so mm-hmm. one of the things that we're working with is who are those community members that people know and trust and how can they help us? deliver one, some of the, the just hard, the FAQs, the strict educational pieces, but also, you know, deliver a message from a trusted person perspective that the vaccine is safe and effective. So who, yeah, who are those people that you've, that you've maybe identified in the community? You know, we've had a, a series of calls with um, community leaders, city councilmen, commissioners, church leaders, hmm. leaders of community-based organizations. And one of the cool things that our team has done is so when one of those individuals comes will come to the drive to to get vaccinated, they'll do a video and, uh, and they'll capture the vaccination on video. That person can deliver a message and then they will get a package, an educational package, a toolkit that's got their video in it and it's got FAQs and it's got information about the vaccine that they can then take to say their congregation and use that to educate people. So they'll get their little education pack and then they go on and, you know, they're ambassadors for the vaccine. Hmm. I love that, that that term, ambassadors for the vaccine. And your role, right, the role of the health system is to provide the material to make it easier for them to be an ambassador in their community. Well put. It's exactly what we're trying to do. We try to establish trust and it comes by showing up over and over and over again. But the reality is there are people that are embedded in those communities that are, that have been there forever and they know people know them and they trust them and, and they're going to be a better messenger than you know somebody from the hospital. Yeah, exactly. 
you two have been at the forefront of creating this really robust campaign, right? We've talked about the proactive data-driven outreach, making sure that you're connecting patients to vaccinations when they're already interacting with the health system, and then using community ambassadors to establish some trust in the community. What's the next step for this campaign? One of the things that we were working on before COVID that uh, really has applicability now as well, and particularly as the vaccine becomes more widely available, is working through community groups that, again, already have some established trust to help us get those health messages out. So we have a group of high school students that um, have an interest in healthcare that we've been working with as health ambassadors. And during flu season, they helped us create a uh, a flu message that uh, was done in English and in Spanish, was promoted in their school areas, and were able to get in one day and a half over the uh, weekend between uh, 1,500 and 2,000 people uh, vaccinated for the flu, many of whom had never been vaccinated for the flu before, so to try to create some momentum there. And so building on programs like that, where we're using the community assets to help provide some information, and then they, they can carry that message forward in their own communities. I love that example because I think it's obvious to look towards ambassadors that are leaders in the community, right? The religious leaders, the city council people, et cetera. But what you're talking about is the fact that you can establish some trust and you can create ambassadors with, I mean, kids, with trusted kids in the community, in in the high school. It was great uh, too, right? We had like our, our high school student workers, uh, they were able to, to deliver a message on Spanish-speaking radio, so they became famous among their peers, you know, because they were on the radio. Uh, and they Can were, confirm that that right, helps. Right? And they were given a message of why the flu shot's important. And so, you know, people in the community were hearing from people they knew, and, and it pulls people in, again, that may have an interest in public health and gets at an early age, shows what an impact they can make. Hmm. Rachel, what, what I'll add here, and by no stretch as uh, interesting or sexy as Dr. Cerise's story, but from a more of a blocking and tackling perspective, it's important with tracking the administration of the vaccines at a very granular level to really understand where and who is getting the vaccines. Are they coming back for that second dose? Because while we look across the whole county, across the whole city, it's how this plays out within certain neighborhoods. So make sure that as we track those elements, we're able to target better or better to understand where the uptake is lower, et cetera, because we're only going to get there by bringing the whole community up together. So if some communities, some neighborhoods are falling behind, we then can understand mm-hmm. why and double down there to make sure that we're able to, uh, to, to elevate them uh, concurrently. And you're also right that that some of the most important work that you can do is not the sexy stuff. It is the blocking and tackling and continuously going back to the data and, and figuring out what works and, and what didn't and filling gaps that really is going to make a difference here. Fred, I want to ask you sort of a personal question before we close out. You are the CEO and the leader of Parkland. You are also a white man. What did you see as your specific role in this initiative? The thing that you didn't want to or, or knew that you couldn't delegate or pass on to anyone else? 
it's not a specific task, but it was the direction to say, we're going to lean into this thing and bring the full force of the resources we have in the health system to address not only things like testing and treatment and vaccinations, but to do it in a way that addresses what I anticipated we would see. Um, and that is, you know, the inequities that have, have played out o- across the country. And so to set the idea that, you know, when we, the county was talking about doing testing for, for COVID-19, that we would bring our resources and we would bring our resources to focus on the underserved areas of town to make sure that those individuals were going to have access to testing. And then we have a team that just, you know, goes crazy. Once you, once you point them in the right direction and give them the resources to, to work, they're going to build a it. whole vulnerability index. And that's right. Um, <laughs> I didn't have to tell, I didn't even have to talk to Steve about that. They knew that that was important because that's sort of the work that we've done historically. But for our operations team, it was basically setting the direction to say, we're going to be active in this space. We're going to show up and we're going to do it in, in a way that ensures people that, that it may take a little extra work, but that people that historically get in the back of the line in, in times like this are going to have access. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you both so much for for coming on Radio Advisory. At the end of every episode, I ask our guests to provide some actionable guidance to our listeners, right? To speak directly to the folks that are listening to this episode. So I want to ask each of you, when it comes to promoting equity in vaccinations, what's the one thing you want our listeners to focus on right now? Steve, let's start with you. Sure. And I would say this goes beyond the vaccination, the COVID, but certainly has a direct application now. And that is creating digital connections to the broader community, Hmm. because we're only going to get there with COVID and with general healthcare needs as a community where the hospital system plays a critical role, but it's not the only the single uh, entity that is driving this. So whether it's that's going to improve access, that's going to help both clinicians in the community identify and then connect individuals who beyond their clinical needs to be able to get the uh, assistance. And by doing that, then we can help make it easier for individuals to do the right thing. Yeah. But we need to meet them where they are, and we need to be able to engage the broader community. And that takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. Maybe during a pandemic is not the time to start, but uh, you need to start sooner rather than later, because I believe that that's the, the, the future way we're going to be able to address health and healthcare equitably and in a way that's scalable. Yeah. And I would say health systems are, are live in this tension of going fast and ensure inequity. And, and oftentimes mm-hmm. we think, you know, you've got to choose, but I would encourage people to, to, to think about you, you, the fact that you can do both. You can go fast and you can mm-hmm. address the inequities along the way. Health systems are very good at, at, at setting a vision, measuring and achieving. And, um, uh, and the equity thing is just one that you have to be intentional about because if you just go fast, there, you, we will perpetuate the inequities. We know that. And so, but uh, being intentional about addressing, you know, what the distribution of the vaccine will look like along the way, and you know, and, and paying attention and measuring that, you, you can absolutely do both. I love that. Thanks, Fred. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. 
stay tuned for part two of this episode, where we'll continue our conversation on health equity with advisory board expert Solomon Banjo. sometimes get the feeling that everyone in healthcare is attuned to this equity challenge, but but nobody really knows how to solve it. As much as we love the work that Parkland has been doing, we know that organizations can go further. So I want to bring on my colleague Solomon Banjo to talk about what other institutions can learn from Parkland's efforts. Hey, Solomon, welcome to Radio Advisory. Hey, Ray. So excited to finally be on. I know. Long, long time waiting for you to, to get on to the pod. Yeah, although this is, I don't like the sound of my voice, so this might be the one episode I don't listen to. <laughs> <laughs> you get over that really fast when you're a podcast host. So what did you think about our conversation with Fred and Steve from Parkland? It captured so many of the themes my team and I have been hearing when it comes to the challenges and also the solutions for it. One of the things that honestly struck me is how much they accounted for and addressed the inertia with so much of the vaccine hesitancy or historical mistrust. And like to explain what I mean there, like when Fred talked about physicians being the number one source for like most trusted source people have. Mm-hmm. The data shows only 23% of people are actually talking to a clinician. Yeah, my first instinct, my first instinct when he said that was, is that true for everyone or is that true for white people? And I think it's a combination of it's true for most people, but no one's actually talking to the clinician. So the idea with mm. the push of, oh, when we have you here, how about we bring that up and then try and route you there? I thought that was a really good point. Mm-hmm. But you bring a great point where as you dig into the data, the aggregate data is almost useless because it doesn't actually reveal what you need to do, especially for some of those communities that are being most impacted by COVID. Yeah. Yeah. I, but we should talk about the data because that was probably the thing that stuck out to me in the conversation the most. And I will also say has stuck out to me with every kind of A-plus organization that I've spoken with that's addressing health equity, period. Mm-hmm. all of them have incredibly robust approaches to data. Yes. And I think the lesson there is we talk about the data, we talk about social determinants of health through the vaccine lens, right? That's what we're most focused on. But this is a long-term play. Like if you're talking mm. about delivering better care, you know, we don't have to get into the whole value-based care models. But when you think about the successful attributes of health systems going forward, much of what you have to do to address vaccine disparities, to address death you know, and, and infection disparities, are the same things you need to address a host of other disparities or a host of other issues. And I think that data point is, is one of the things that, that really struck with me too. Is there anything else that you really liked or really struck you about their approach to reducing inequities in vaccinations? Yeah, and I don't think they called it this, but their ambassador starter kit, when they mentioned... Oh, they should call it that. They should. And, I, you know, no royalties necessary, but just... 
that concept of let's videotape the message you want to deliver. Let's empower you with the FAQ so you can have those conversations because what we do know goes a long way to addressing hesitancy in any community, rural, doesn't matter. Yeah. Is seeing and knowing people who receive the vaccine. And so actually empowering those people, not just to say, oh yeah, it happened to me, but hey, here's my story. And to amplify that, I love it. Yeah, I, I loved that too, because it's a it's a systemized approach mm-hmm. and a scalable approach to community education. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we we like Parkland's approach, and it's it's certainly the most robust one that I've seen in the United States. But no organization has figured this this problem out, uh, and, and I don't think there are easy solutions to a problem as complex as health equity and a an issue as complex as legitimate vaccine hesitancy. Where do you think an organization like Parkland could be pushing further? Personally, the place that comes to mind would be around the partnerships piece. Hmm. You know, when we have these conversations, and honestly, I've been guilty of this, you know, we talk often about, oh, religious leaders as a partnership, so people trusted in the community. But I think to get to that herd immunity that Fred and Steve were talking about that we know is the goal, we're going to need to make sure we're being that our message is everywhere that these conversations are happening. And so that may be unconventional places. I mean, in population health, we've seen barbershops, other community settings be really effective. And so I would say, again, this is where we need to be creative and scrappy yeah. And not just following sort of well-trodden paths. And I think probably ready to, you know, repeat ourselves over and over and over mm-hmm. and over again, mm-hmm. because we do need to be everywhere that these, these, these people are. If I can reveal sort of what, what makes me uncomfortable, well, there's sort of two things that make me uncomfortable about the religious leader piece. One is that I just get afraid that it's a stereotype. Like, let's go to black mm-hmm. churches. Mm-hmm. But the second one that, that you and I are acutely aware of because of um, some research that we're, we're doing is that the medical system has used religious leaders before for the wrong reasons, for mm-hmm. experimentation, for exploitation. And those are things that are probably going to be, you know, front and center in folks' minds when they think about hesitancy. So it just kind of comes back to your point of it doesn't mean don't go to the religious leaders, but you also probably shouldn't just stop there. Exactly. I think the real currency here is trust and figuring out for the populations you're interested in, for those communities who has trust, And how do you amplify their message, get them on board? And it's not just going to be religious leaders. And it might be places that you didn't expect. Like, I love the idea that they haven't even quite turned on yet, but of high school students who are going to talk to their parents and their parents' friends. And, and, you know, I would have never thought that that would be an example of an ambassador Mm -hmm. that that could establish trust. Anything else that, you know, with all of, of your knowledge and experience that you think Parkland could be could be pushing further on? Yeah, one piece of advice I've been giving as I've been sharing some of this data and having these conversations is I show the aggregate national data of the breakdown of hesitancy, historical mistrust, etc. And I'll just push Parkland there for as rich as their data is in understanding at the block and individual level, the social determinants of health. 
do they have a sense for the different mixtures of, oh, in this community, how much of it is being driven by mistrust, how much of it is being driven by hesitancy and tailoring their approaches, since we know those are two very distinct sets of solutions to those distinct origins of the, the hesitancy, if you will. And maybe even having different methods of capturing that data. So -hmm. if you're talking to folks about their questions with vaccines in the moment, in the office visit, how are you actually also capturing that data to understand where their hesitancy is coming from and and what people it's it's coming from? Yeah. And even that it could be both, right? I might express hesitancy over some of the misinformation. Are you also asking me, though, to get a sense of the historical mistrust? So you're also addressing that even though it might be the less comfortable conversation, especially for clinicians to be having. Right, right. Parkland is obviously not starting from scratch, not with their health equity efforts, not with their social determinants efforts, not even with their vaccine programs, right? They mentioned a flu vaccine program that they had established pre-COVID. Most of the organizations that we work with aren't that advanced, Do you have advice for folks that are at the beginning of their journey? They recognize that equity in vaccinations is a problem. They know that building trust is something that they should do, but they just don't know where to start. The first thing I will I will say is in conversations, it often comes up as, oh, this is an additional thing we need to focus on. And I'm a believer in the power of defaults. And so especially when you're early on in your journey, how do you start building in equity into how you think about success? Hmm. I think of Fred's comment of, oh, you can be both fast and equitable, but I think that only happens if from the get-go you're thinking about who are we missing? Who might our plan be missing? And asking those questions as you devise uh, your strategy. Well, Solomon, I'm going to ask you the same question that I asked to Fred and Steve. When it comes to reducing inequities in vaccinations, what's the one thing you want our listeners to focus on? So from a health system perspective, I echo what Fred said. So I might focus then on drug makers and what my advice would be to those leaders. Hmm. And I would say they're doing the first thing we want them to do, right, which is increasing the supply of vaccines. But secondary to that, I would say, how can you enhance the range of support you're providing to healthcare providers to address vaccine hesitancy, to address historical mistrust, and really amplifying those messages, going above and beyond the technical support we know they're providing already. Thanks, Solomon. Thanks, Ray. We were obviously very impressed with what Parkland has done, and I'm sure that you want to learn more. So we've added some links in the show notes to some other articles that they've published about their robust process. And we're going to keep talking about the role of health equity in COVID-19, in vaccinations, and in healthcare more broadly. This is an important and complex topic, and we want you to know that we are here to help. That was good. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to be quiet forever now.